Our, our text is 2 Peter 1, but we're going to start in Psalm 2. We're going to look at Psalm 2 just to bridge what our experience is, what we're seeing with the passage. I want us to go to Psalm 2, uh, verses 1 to 6, and just uh, to set a, a backdrop, a connection between our experience and then where the Lord would lead us in Peter. In Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now as we look to Peter, he affirms to us, Who is this king who is infinitely above all others, who is not threatened by any earthly power? Indeed, he who holds all of these powers in derision and who holds them in his hand and who will bring them all to a reckoning. The one that we know is Jesus. And so Peter lifts Christ up to us as this king. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. The morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your people, each one a manifestation that you are gracious, powerful God. I thank you for their hearts displayed by being here. They want to honor you. They want to know you. They want to exalt you. And so we ask that you would help us 
to grow in all of this, to deepen in how we love and cherish and lift up Christ. Oh, how we need that above all things to, to exalt Christ in all we are and do. So, Spirit of God, fill us with the grace to see and to have our lives permeated so that is our touch on others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus, verse 16, is returning in power. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not something new. This is something you're aware of, that you've heard of, that you've sung about, that you've spoken of. The Lord Jesus returning in power. And yet, we can be accustomed to it and not recognize how utterly extraordinary that is in its implications to us in daily life. It's not just something that's going to be very important on the day when the trumpet sounds. It is of essential importance every day. Consider just a few of these implications. It means that the resurrection of Jesus truly took place if he is returning in power. And we cannot overstate resurrection power. Death rules over every place, every person. It doesn't matter how wealthy or strong or influential they are. Death rules over everyone except Christ who dismantled death. Christ did not just leave the door open as he came out of death. He ripped the door off its hinges and cast it aside so that everyone who follows him, for us, death is only an entrance to the glory of his face. How much power do you need in your life for what you face? And I would ask, is resurrection power enough? Is that enough for what you face? That is the power Christ has already displayed. Christ returning in power means he has the authority to judge us. It means everyone on the face of this earth is accountable to him. He is returning in power. Which means also that our opinions are not the final word no matter how highly we think of our opinions. And the opinions of everyone else in this world, none of it is the final say, the one returning in power. It is his word that has the final say. Jesus returning in power means we do not need to fear anyone or anything but him. Jesus returning in power means our, our hope is not in our performance or in our circumstances, but our hope has a name. 
the Lord Jesus Christ returning in power. And that means that living wholeheartedly for him is the only kind of living that makes sense. Any other type of approach to life is empty. It it has no end to it, no good end, because Christ is returning in power. These are all glorious realities that need to be working their way through uh, how we respond to life, how we think about our day, what we value, what we fear or don't fear, what we're upset by, what we value and pursue. All of these should be affected by the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ who will return in power. However, Peter was concerned because false teachers had come into the church and were attacking this truth. And the rest of this letter to the church was focusing on these attacks on the truths of Christ and his return. We have a a fairly good sense of what these false teachers we're proclaiming by what Peter has to say. Chapter 3, we see that they dismissed the reality that Christ was returning to either judge or rule over us. Chapter 3, verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days. With scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued the way they were from the beginning of creation. All these claims that God's going to come, God's going to hold us accountable, we haven't seen anything. So they were trying to erode the, the confidence believers were putting in Christ's return. And so they were urging people, if there is no return of Christ, no rule of Christ that we have to be concerned with, then we're free to choose our own lifestyles. We we can make whatever life we deem best. We see this in chapter 2, verse 18. He says of them, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. So Peter is speaking of those, as he describes them, those who are barely escaping for those who live in error. I mean, believers who are new and still somewhat tenuous in their confidence in the doctrines of God. And they are, they're seeking to live godly lives and they feel weak and they're struggling. And these who would claim to, to have the truth of God are seeking to erode and wear down these believers who are immature as it is. In addition to this, we know that in the Greco-Roman world, in which this is all taking place, mythology was 
the central uh, way in which they viewed the world. And so to the, the rest of the world around the church, they viewed this idea that this crucified Jesus, they called the Christ, that he is a king that has a kingdom and will rule. Uh, they just viewed that as just one other mythological construct. That, of course, the, the Christians are, are free to have their construct, not one to be envied. Because they the myth they follow, he ended in death. But when we think of all these influences, those who would diminish any concern of the returning rule of Christ, those who would say that we should pursue our own lifestyles, those who, who would say that Christ is just a construct some people have made up, is that not still the spirit of our world? Has anything changed? Not at all. This is the attitude of the world. This is the heart that we see. These are influences that come against us. The world remains opposed to the truth of God and the person of Christ. And so, we believers, we're still in the same world. Facing these same lies, distortions, these same pressures, these eroding influences that perhaps don't cause us to deny Christ or or say we don't believe in Scripture, yet if we're not careful, we can find ourselves being less than wholehearted for Christ, which is what he deserves and the only way to live that makes sense. So Peter here gives two reasons to trust that Christ truly is king. The first is that Peter says, I was eyewitness of his majesty myself. Verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received glory, and honor from God the Father and the voice born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice. You can imagine Peter as he's writing this. He wants the church to be utterly convinced of the truths of Christ of the authority of, of these realities of his power and his coming. And as he's writing, how, how can your mind not go back to that moment? That moment that uh, we know of as the man of transfiguration. And Peter began to think, oh, I, I remember that moment when Jesus in his majesty was displayed so radiant we could not look upon him and then the voice came we heard the voice of god itself or those few moments 
disciples saw Jesus as he is in his true glory. Something beyond anything that exists in this world. And they heard the Father affirm, this one, this is my son, meaning the heir of heaven. And then they were told that Jesus is the one they must listen to. For what was that voice from heaven? What did it say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We can trust that Christ truly is king. Because the apostles were eyewitnesses of the glory of Christ and the voice of the Father, as well as the glory of Christ in coming out of the tomb. They had seen these things. They're not ideas they came up with. The second reason Peter gives why we can trust Christ truly is king is that God's word, which exalts Christ, itself is trustworthy. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He he speaks of the confirmation of what he saw, but he says there's an even greater confirmation than my testimony. The prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy ever was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Christ's life confirms Scripture in the the vast numbers of prophecies that he fulfilled and all of the displays of power that came from him, Jesus speaking and demons trembling, death giving up those they held, the sea being calm, those blind receiving sight. He just spoke and these things happened. Jesus' life confirms Scripture which spoke of him and Scripture shines the light and exalts Christ. Declares him on every page, This is the one we are presenting to you. This is whom the triune God has given us. Christ. None of this is the opinions of men that Christ should be exalted. It is what God the Father has said. It is what God the Holy Spirit confirms. So, We need to regularly consider our hearts carefully. Are there any ways, any ways, that you are not living fully by the word of Christ? It may be that 
in general, oh, yes. Yeah, I could generally say I am. We're not speaking of generalities. We're speaking of specifics. Each one of them. Is there any way in which you know you are not living fully under the word of Christ? And the immediate question to follow up to that is, why? If we truly see Christ returning in power, what rationale are we using to justify living less for him? What is it that we gain? Or because we compromise because we think we're gaining something. Some benefit, some pleasure, some goodness. God will understand he wants life to be good. We have all these justifications. Why we, we can cling to something we know is not living for Christ. But there is no justification that makes any sense. It's all empty. If we speak of fabrication, it is all of the reasons we give ourselves of why we don't follow Christ fully. On the contrary, what we need, and he deserves, but what we also need is to fully embrace God's word in our lives. For verse 19 tells us it's like a lamp shining in dark places. Life has lots of dark places. The world has lots of dark places. We need light shining. There's enough darkness. We need light. Without light, all sorts of little evils begin creeping in. Ever been in a place you flick on a light and cockroaches all just scatter? You didn't know you were there. You I think I want the light off. I didn't know that what was going on all around me. You flick on the light. Hundreds of them just running around. That's what darkness does in our lives. All these little things that we're not noticing. All these little compromises, little attitudes, little words, little slanders, little gossips, little selfishness. All these, all these little monsters of sin just creeping and crawling in our life. And then the light comes and we see it. And before the light of Christ, it scatters. We need that light shining to keep all those little evils from getting any traction place in our life. Without light, fear arises. I've been in my own house by myself. And you go to the next floor where no lights are on and you know there's no monsters in there, but, well, maybe there might be. Let, let me just turn on the light. Just darkness being alone, little bits of fear, completely unreasonable, and just a little bit of light chases away. We can be afraid being in dark places when we know there's no truth to it. When there's darkness, when there's not the light of 
God's word, the light of the person of Christ shining on us, all these distortions of thinking and, and fears begin to grow and get bigger. Bigger than even our trust in Christ. And darkness, all kinds of uncertainty. Not sure about your way. How many times have you stubbed your toe trying to get through a dark room? We're not sure where things are. Ignorance flourishes in the dark. It's the breeding ground for ignorance. Darkness has real impact. But all of us face, all of us experience, all of us fight with, live with. We need as the picture given to us, to have like a workman with a flashlight to know what we're doing. So work can be done. Let's see what's going on. Let's see where to go. We need light shining, truth, reality, and at the center of it, the person of Christ himself, the one who is the light of the world. has common graces of wisdom. It's not that the world has no wisdom, can come to no helpful conclusions. There's lots of common wisdom where people are able to do things that are helpful to heal diseases and, and meet different needs. There is this level of common wisdom, but common wisdom doesn't include the person of Christ. I was reminded of that this last week I was reading a short book by a well-known liberal theologian, uh, just an excellent writer, and he draws you in, and he, he starts and has these good thoughts about paying attention to people, listening to people, not being so fast through life that you ignore them and, and how God would want to use you in the lives of people. And you're getting these encouragements and, and helpful thoughts and examples, but it, he never gets to Christ. And, and I was thinking of how many times I've read what liberal theologians will write and think, there's some good things here. And they're thinking... And they're writing so well and engaging, but I realize it's they always stop common graces as far as they get. They never get to saving grace. They never get to Christ crucified and raised. They never get to our problem is sin, and only the blood of Christ can wash that away. Only he gives life. So we, we need to make sure we're not just settling into common wisdom, which can have some benefits. We need the wisdom of Christ and him crucified. Desperately, we need that. And it is scripture that shines on Christ everywhere. Scripture is always lifting up Christ, the purpose on every page. And that's what we need to be reading day by day, beginning our day with the lifting up of Christ. Remember again, yes, he is so wondrous. He is worth 
whole heart again today. There is nothing. I pray for more for my church family than that we would have saw Christ, that we would see him lifted up. If we're seeing Christ lifted up, the struggles of the sin lessen. When we see Christ lifted up, we're not afraid. When we see Christ lifted up, the true hurts in our heart, we find help. When we see Christ lifted up, we're designed to be a part of grand and wondrous things. How we need Christ exalted in our hearts and minds above all other things. That is what we need most. And where is that found but in the word of God? Nowhere else will he be exalted. So we have seen that there is a king returning in power. Greater than all those in this world. We've seen the reasons why we should trust him. And the rest of my time, what do we need to know about Jesus who is returning? Or better yet, for you who know these things, what do we need to remain mindful of? What do we need to, to feed our soul upon? The first is, verse 16, he is the Christ. Be made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means Messiah, which means the anointed one. As we saw in Psalm 2, the Lord has a king. He has his anointed one. His Christ is the one exalted before all those in the world who are thinking they can get their way and they don't need God. There is one whom the Lord has lifted above, the Father has. It is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the sent one. The world agonizes in pain, heartache, death, injustice. You don't have to go somewhere to find pain. Just Slow down and and press into anyone's life you know and you'll soon find pain. For many, the pain is extraordinary, all-consuming. The amount, the amount of abuse and corruption in this world is staggering. The world is trying to anesthetize themselves to find happiness so they don't have to think about reality. What do we do with it? I remember just over a month ago, I was in Germany for the Ark Church, one of our partner churches in Sovereign Grace, for their conference and we're having uh, churches from different parts of Europe there for fellowship, and there were a dozen Ukrainian pastors there. And it described, they're all in the midst, in the east. They, they just, war is daily life. They all know people killed. One pastor 
those sons abducted, tortured, murdered, and burned. And he continues to minister, and you don't even know what to do with hearing that. You say, oh, I feel bad for you. What do you do? And at the same weekend, we're hearing the news that Lita finally her day in court, and this innocent woman, two years in a labor camp, and her heart's breaking. And then a, a pastor friend who has to step down because cancer is just taking over his body. And another pastor friend sent me a video of his mother in another country, but in a nursing home, and just you know, seeing frightful things. And she has dementia. And this video of her crying out in fear and pain, and he doesn't know how to help her. And we hear all this, and we don't know what to do with it. That's, that's the human experience. And every bit of it comes from Satan. Every bit of it. In the world, they think they have this question, this dilemma that they can throw at us, that silences our talk of God. They say, so where is God? Where is the goodness of God? Where is the justice of God? I remember telling a woman, her son who had been abducted in another country and was murdered and beheaded, and you're in there and you're telling her what had happened to her son, and she just gets up and starts screaming, There is no God! There is no God! We hear the accusation, and we can step back and measure, well, what do we say to that? Where is God? God is manifest. He came, the person of Jesus Christ. He came to deal with the cause of it all, our sin. Pastor Michael from Dnepro in Ukraine, who I was with in Germany. This is what he shared about the, the man who serves in the midst of warfare. Friends have died, church members scattered by war. Every night, hundreds of refugees come and stay, and they try to minister to them. And this is what he said. Every day we're confronted with death destruction, and the suffering of people. But all this pales in comparison to the glory and mercy of Christ. When people ask, where is God in this? We point to Christ on the cross. There he is, suffering for our sin. Jesus is the Christ. He is God's answer. Not some slogan answer to make us feel good. It is God in flesh facing the grittiness of sin by taking it upon himself of receiving the wrath of Father, paying the price, dealing completely with 
the cause of every burden in this world and setting us free. Where is God in all the injustice? He is on the cross dying for us. Receiving the wrath of God, paying the greatest price, bearing the greatest pain and suffering that could ever be born. We have full and complete answer to the question the world thinks silences the church. And at that moment where they say, where is God in this? That is where our voices can ring out. He is on the cross dying for you. And you who have hated him and despised him and ignored him in this moment, you call out, he will save you the only way he saves anyone, completely and forever. Jesus waded into the mess. And he, he sobbed on himself and went down. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 21, 4. Our sake, he made him Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not that we might become good people, that we might become the righteousness of God. Once we trust in him, then Jesus leads us into light and wisdom. He leads us through all our heartaches to a place of rest and eventual wholeness. For Jesus himself said, Matthew 11, come to me. He's not far. He's not ignoring you. He says, come to me. This is not ideas. This is not a pastor telling you, follow what I say and you'll be helped. This is Christ, the one returning in power, saying, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my rule, my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What we need to keep in mind of Jesus, he is the Christ. He is God's answer, the solution to everything. Secondly, he is the Lord. Verse 16, we have made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is essential we cannot, we cannot, we cannot have Jesus as Savior without having Jesus as Lord. We're not speaking of mixing works in with his grace. We're speaking of who Jesus is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. To seek just, oh, I want grace, I want a better life. To, to seek salvation and to ignore Lord is to ignore who he is. He is Savior and Lord. It's, it's, 
who he is by nature and by right. And so to receive him without receiving his Lord is not to receive the person of Jesus because the person of Jesus is Savior and Lord. That's who he is. We do not receive him without receiving who he is. Self-rule, being in charge, they're a big draw. At least they are to me. I love to be in charge until I receive the fruit of it. I've been working it out. The idea of getting our way, being in charge, self-rule, it sounds so good, but it's such an empty promise. And it never carries us. Christ has what kind of power? Resurrection power. What do we have? What's our power? Just look at your track record. We have what our life has produced. The inability to fix our own lives, let alone anyone else. Let alone address the world. Now, we can go ahead and try for self-rule. You know, mix a little biblical goodness in it. I love Jesus too. But everything that will be under our rule. Everything that will be under our rule will be lost forever. Nothing will be saved. Not a fragment of what we rule over will be saved because there is only one kingdom in the end. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is under his rule last? Everything not submitted under his rule is lost forever. What a good way to spend our lives. Life is hard. What we work for is not easy. And for it to be lost, to be wasted. Empowerment has become such a big word in our culture. Empowerment. But in the end, only Christ can empower. The rest is just a facade. And our last point, last thought, what we need to remember to keep in mind about Christ the King returning in power. He is Christ. He is Lord. And he is, verse 19, he is the morning star. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. At the very end of Revelation, in the last few verses, Jesus calls himself the morning star. It is that star seen just before dawn breaks. And think of when Jesus makes the claim for himself right as he's closing his last words to us. As he is spoken of his coming, he is giving hope to the church and he calls himself, remember, I am the morning star. Those who trust in Christ were, were trusting in a hope is not yet sight. We're, 
we're believing in and trusting that we will be fully glorified, that all will be made well and whole in the church, that Christ will reign and all will be good and every tear brushed aside and our hearts fill with joy in the presence of Christ, receiving his delight. We, we think of these things and seek to remind each other and we speak of it in funerals and we read bits of it and we struggle to see it. But this we have if you, if you follow Christ. By his power, he has put a glimmer of that future in your heart. There is a glimmer of eternity within our hearts. He is the morning star. The day has not yet broken. His return when all is day has not yet come. But Christ who resides in us is this glimmer of what is to come. And at times we lose sight of it. We do not always see Christ. We don't always look at him. We don't always think of him as we should. But he is always there. And he is always reigning. And he is always in us and with us. And he is always shining. He is ours and we are his. And nothing can change that. He is always there. wishing hope. We have hope complete and stoppable. There is, people of God, there is only room for one thing in His name. Do you not know it? His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We praise you that you do not become so frustrated and disgusted with us that you would cast us aside forever. Oh, you did the opposite. You you sent your son not to help us, to save us. You embraced humanity. You even... You even received our guilt. You drank the full cup. How can we speak adequately of what you've done for us? And here we are trying. Lord, you see our hearts. We do love you. We're seeking to follow you. We struggle with it. And you know all that. So help us. You who see each person in heart here, meet them where they are. That the light would grow and be light in their souls. That they would have the joy of following you fully. Lord, help us in these things. In 